Welcome to Tuesday Home Time for this last Tuesday of June. No week that was this week, but hopefully Kevin will be back with us next week. But today we hear from Nick McClellan as to why the French President has brought forward the third and final referendum for the independent vote for New Caledonia. I'll also speak with Professor Jason McLeod about his long advocacy for West Papua and the group he is with at the moment, Make West Papua Safe. Dedication to Palestine over 20 years in the health and humanitarian field by Dr Francis Nathan and Merlin Nathan and how PNG citizens are dealing with COVID and the ever-present developers out to exploit their land. So that's Tuesday home time. I hope you can stay with me till 6 o'clock. Earlier this month, the Zoom forum was conducted by the Adelaide Group Australian Friends for Palestine Association in their series, Palestine Talks, Topical Talks on All Things Palestine. The guest speakers were Dr Francis Nathan and Merlin Nathan, and the topics were Providing Health and Humanitarian Services in Palestine. I spoke with Francis and Merlin at the weekend and began by asking them about their backgrounds in the health field. What happened is we studied uh, in India in, at a place called Christian Medical College below. That's where we met. Born in Malaysia and Merlin was born in Singapore. We did our schooling in Malaysia and Singapore and then went over to India to study, mainly because of um, affordability. It was more affordable to go there. Anyway, um, after finishing, we came back to Malaysia and Singapore and worked separately. I as a general doctor and Merlin as an occupational therapist. And we found we couldn't work and live together in the same place. So we were commuting between Malaysia and Singapore and it got a bit tiresome. And we decided to look to migrate elsewhere. So we looked at the US, UK and Australia and New Zealand and our first job actually came was off, uh, the first offer came from Adelaide. So we moved here through a friend and started working here. Then I decided to do ophthalmology, which is eye medicine and surgery. And Merlin did a health counseling diploma as well. I uh, then just worked, worked here and then, you know, I guess always wanted to work elsewhere as well. I often say it's uh, soothing my Catholic conscience. <laughs> I left home and, and so, uh, and when the chances came up, we just um, did a bit of work here and there. Started off with the Aboriginal health care system here. And then joined up with a group called C International, S-E-E, standing for Surgical Eye Expedition, which is based in California. I just bumped into them at a conference in the U.S. and we got chatting and then the first trip they were going to do, or they were advertising a trip to Malaysia. So I thought that'd be a good way to start. So I went back to Malaysia just for a week. So they do short-term surgical trips to do eye surgery all over the world. This thing came up. And how I got into Palestine was basically, I went there as a tourist because a friend of mine was working here, a Spanish guy was working as a fellow here in Adelaide. And he went over to St. John's Eye Hospital in East Jerusalem, and he said, come and visit me. So we always had this thing about it. And I went there and just got fascinated by the, the life and the situation there and 
So we decided to actually go and try and work there. Um, we were offered to work in Jerusalem for three months at the eye hospital, and Merlin was going to work in a, a women's center, I think, Princess Basma Center in East Jerusalem, Mount of Olives. But that was the year our, one of our sons was doing his year 12, and so that didn't come through. And then see International uh, on their program was a trip to, to Gaza. So I jumped at that, and then that was their first trip to Palestine. But we didn't, eventually we didn't go to Gaza because there were some restrictions there. And so we went to the West Bank, which is a city called Nablus, and started the work there. In between, I've still been doing surgical trips with the international all over, like Burma and Zimbabwe and, you know, Costa Rica, sort of all over the world. Merlin, have you been to all those countries with Francis, or do you go independently when you go for your work? I got hooked onto it because he started going, and um, once the children were old enough and I was able to get some family support, I used to go uh, with uh, Francis, but in the earlier years, um, we used to go separately. Originally, Palestine was my focus, and then as people got to know about occupational therapy and its work, I got involved in other uh, volunteer groups, but primarily we used to go individually. I'll go to a trip in Palestine and then he will go so someone could look after our children when we, we were younger. When did you become part of the group in Adelaide working with Palestine? Uh, it was in uh, 2004. We've been going to Palestine since the year 2000 and then Murden started coming in 2002. So we uh, just came across uh, someone who said, who introduced us to a Palestinian lawyer here, Abi Hamdan, and she was saying that oh, we want to form a group. So we are kind of the founder members of the Australian Friends of Palestine. So we were mainly um, interested in their in their funding because we thought they could help with our work and fund some of the things that needed. And sure enough. I mean, it was kind of mutually beneficial because we got to learn a lot more of the the politics and the social history and because of the activism of the other co-founders. Only last week we spoke with a, at a Zoom session about AFOPA, which is the Australian Friends of Palestine Association, which spoke on bringing humanitarian aid to Palestine. That was the topic of our talk, and so we mentioned all of these things as well. Since then, they have also been very supportive, not only funding airfares, but they also convinced, we convinced them to try and um, you know, raise funds for essential equipment. So we've, we've gone, I mean, I can go through all of that in a minute if you want, but it, uh, briefly later maybe. Merlin, when did you and Francis become aware of Palestine? Was it way before the 2000s? Just about there, um, as Francis um, alerted you how he started with a visit to Palestine, we did never touched our subjects in school or anything for that matter. We only got to know through the first trip Francis did to Jerusalem and then um, subsequent trips we were became more and more aware of the um, issues uh, as, as we met families and staff working with PCRF, that's the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Before that, to be honest, no, we were very 
isolated in those sort of world issues. We just got on with our life. We were so lucky in Australia to come here. And being in Australia, we I always am grateful for the, all the opportunities that it gave us, the security and the opportunities it gave us to go and help people of Palestine. I know a lot of people say, why Palestine? Uh, why not go to India? Being Indian, why not go to local regions? But we somehow got connected and a lot of people supported us. And the more we visited, the more we felt the anguish and the inequities and the in social injustice that was going on right in front of our eyes. And we made the right choice working in Palestine. The first time you went there, were you prepared for the situation? Was it worse or better than what you thought it might be? For me, no, really. Uh, when I first went in 2000, uh, we just were confronted with questioning and checkpoints. But uh, the person who came along with me was American, Bailey Brown, and she had been before because she had friends. She used to tell me about it, like, this is what may happen or whatever. But you just kind of took it in your stride. And only um, when you started working in the place, to give you an example, we were invited to go, uh, one of the nurses who was helping us to a family's house for dinner, and we were sitting outside on the lawn, and we saw some kind of little stones landing, and not large, but rock, almost rocks landing further away down the, down the track. And we were wondering what's happening. And we said, oh, those are the settlers up there in the, in the hills there. They tend to just keep throwing things down and just to irritate us. Just ignore them. And then on our way back, it was quite late. We had to go, and then there was a checkpoint. And the, the doctor who took us, he said, look, look, he got kind of panicky. He said, we'll take you around the back way. And so we took, you know, sort of back streets and back roads and finally got back to the hospital where we were, or the hotel near the hospital where we were staying. So it, it kind of didn't phase, uh, yeah, me much. You just that, you just look at, that was it. And then it didn't really evoke a lot of, like, anger until later when you went to Gaza and then you heard, uh, like, attacks and on first visit to Gaza together, the IDF attacked Han Yunis, which is the place, one of the smaller towns in Gaza, and we were woken up at 2 o'clock in the morning with uh, gunfire and, and choppers around us. We only found out at two hours later through BBC, we could get BBC on our TV, and they were saying they were attacking Khan Yunus, and, and because it was all like pitch dark, they had cut off the power. And the next morning, we couldn't start work because all the beds were full with casualties. Then it began to kind of hit you more and more how dire things were for the local people. And Merlin mentioned in the talk uh, the other day, she always felt like she was abandoning them when we came back to Australia, had the sense of uh, quite deep sadness when we sit in the airport and to come home. But at the same time, we were happy just to get out of there too. But like I said, it's never been seriously dangerous. We, you are surrounded by it and we try and switch off and, and try and concentrate on what we have to do there. We come back, people ask us about it. We think, oh, wow, it was a bit dicey. We learned a lot more of the history, how the 
dispossession occurred in the past. And so whenever we've been asked to speak nowadays to groups, we've always incorporated the history and the the loss of land and we put up slides about the maps and stuff like that. We become very much aware within probably our third or fourth trip, we became very much aware and become more active. We tended to have settled down with our indignation and anger and all that now because I guess we're getting a bit old and and, and mellowing. We don't talk too much about all those issues anymore because people, I think, also get a bit of a fatigue hearing all those things. Merlin, how did you find Gaza, particularly as an occupational therapist? Francis has just described the, the the way that the people are forced to live in a in a well, it's virtually a war zone. They never know when they're going to be attacked again. There must be a lot of people suffering greatly, even though it mightn't be. They mightn't have physical injuries so much, but mental and psychological injuries. You've picked the. It it is difficult and very confrontative, especially mothers and their disabled children. And because of my language barrier, I've had to work with the social workers that work with PCRS. But a lot of the time, uh, we use uh, therapy strategies to overcome that but more, more through the local OTs. It is very, very confrontative. At times, they would break down, and at times, they put up a barrier and try to be very strong internally because they have to. They have to be um, seen to be proud and uh, able to handle it. Uh, what we tend, tend to do is talk through the local staff and ascertain what their needs are. Sometimes it can be as basic as food or nappies and the need for funding for those sort of things, which over the years PCRF has has found ways and means of raising funds for that. Gaza especially, because it, they've got not only a, the physical wall, but uh, checkpoints, it's been hard for everyone to get in and out. My first experience for the checkpoint and crossing was it was incredible, but we went through that. It was worse than going through an airport <laughs> checkpoint. Um, but uh, over the years, I think I've been four, five trips to Gaza, and most of the time on my own. Twice, Francis came with me. What amazed me was the pride and the strength both the families and the staff had to get through the, the stress and the war that just went on. A number of times I've been sitting safely in my little uh, abode and I would hear the bombing. I would have thought it was fireworks till the next morning um, because it has always been in the distance most of the time. I'm staying within the city. Whatever it is, I only feel that I had to get through that uh, session and time there and leave because I know I would leave. But I would think of all these families who just could not leave and want to leave. And therefore the strength, and I admire that. And I always feel when I left that I have to have that same strength to come back (laughs) and help again whenever I could. I can't even describe 
the feelings uh, when I'm there. Most of the time, I just shut down my fears and uh, get on with my work. And because I get draw that strength from these my staff there, my fellow workers, and even some of the mothers. It's amazing how how much they have to go through with sometimes two to three children with disabilities. It's amazing. I can only say that if they can get through that, I can in the short one or one and a half weeks that I'm there. How I thought. These disabled children, is this result <laughs> of bombings? or are these children born with disabilities? Uh, both. Some are, are bombings and some are children born with disabilities because of, I suppose we there is a high level of uh, children just born with disabilities. I think there are familial issues as well as environmental issues. We don't know what the, the causes, but there are high levels of children with disabilities, but just as much casualties of the war especially in Gaza. In the first few years, the five years that I was there, I would say it's a half-half um, familial issues as well as casualties of war and burns. We had a lot of burns, children with burns and scarring, amputees, some children with loss of limbs, adults as well. Yeah, those were the major uh, injuries that I dealt with. And do you have other occupational therapists coming from other countries working with you and working with the people? At one time I had, I was accompanied by an OT from New Zealand. She was brave enough to come with me. Usually I'm the only OT from Australia. I know there have been a couple of other OTs from the States, but I never, I'm usually on my own when I get to, um, to Palestine and the West Bank and Gaza other than this OT from New Zealand that came with me. How different do you find working or work, how you worked in Gaza to the work that you did in the West Bank? In the early years, uh, they had the facilities, especially in the, there was the Al Wafa Rehab Centre. I think in the year that I, le I finished uh, with Gaza when I was allowed to go in because of... Um, the hazards. Uh, I was given permission last year in April to go back, but then with COVID, everything got locked down. But in the early years, they had the facilities and they had a couple of trained OTs who were there, but they had no continuing education and they welcomed my visit and I was able to train them in, in areas that they felt they needed more experience in especially certain traumas. They weren't in splinting. They required training in with the children with play therapy. So there were few, I suppose, deficits in their training programs. So they, they alerted me to the fact and then I provided a lot of hands-on training in particular areas that they needed training in and equipment in. In the West Bank, in the early years, they, they didn't have many trained OTs. I was working with assistants, uh, so I was just training the assistants. But as soon as they uh, acquired uh, occupational therapists, trained occupational therapists, then I started training them and mentoring them and providing them with all sorts of information, even on my return, and uh, books. Uh, webinars, Zoom meetings. I mean, they weren't called Zoom meetings. I was using Skype 
I used to once a week Skype with them and, and help them with any difficult cases they need, especially in Gaza. The early years after 2005 when I couldn't go, we used to have regular Skype meetings to uh, handle difficult cases that they couldn't deal with. Over the years, it was mainly equipment that, uh, and in specific areas of training that they needed. So I used to supply, I mean, through the benefactors of uh, uh, FOPA, I used to provide equipment and training because has, they had, hadn't had any access to specific training programs. So we were able to provide the equipment and the training in the West Bank. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on 3CR Community Radio with Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Dr Francis Nathan and Merlin Nathan about their work in Palestine. Francis, I'd imagine that you would need to take equipment or facilities with you when yes. you go. How do you get yes. those through the blockades? Fortunately, the entry into to Israel proper is easiest through the airport, uh, through uh, Tel Aviv. The other way of getting through is to go through Jordan, but that takes uh, much longer. So um, when we go to the airport, in the early stages, they used to check everything, and so it was a bit difficult in full of society. But you know, as long as we explained that we're doing some work and they just probably wanted to check whether there was any kind of bombs and all that, that sort of stuff. So in the later years, it has become quite easy. It's easy because a lot of eye surgery is all micro stuff, microsurgical instruments. So you can easily pack it in. So I have two instrument sets and then, but for like certain what we call hardware, like diagnostic stuff, and they're slightly bigger and, some, and often we have to get it through the official channels. So we've been working with PCRF. Now, I, we haven't mentioned PCRF. PCRF is the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. They are the ones that we started work with. They were the people on the ground when I first went in the year 2000. So it's run by a chap called Steve Sosaby, who's American. He has started this organization to bring in uh, overseas surgeons and allied health personnel to run these uh, missions. So each mission is like a week's long, and all the specialties are, are covered, literally from head to toe. We have brain surgery, orthopedic, ear, nose and throat, eye surgery, plastic surgeon, and the like. So when we need to bring things, we often coordinate with them. And being on the ground, they are able to kind of help us. They always are met at the airport directly. Uh, as soon as we land, somebody's there to meet us and then take us to wherever we need to go, either to Nablus or Hebron or Gaza. And often we land up and Murdin will go south to Gaza and I'll go north to Nablus. So it's become easier because of what we have contacts on the ground there. So we've been able to actually bring lots of stuff. Easier in Lebanon as well because of, like I said, local contacts. So it hasn't been a major issue except for like once in Lebanon, I brought an operating microscope from here, from Adelaide which actually manufactured in Adelaide by a company called Scan Optics. And they wanted to charge us tax. And I just said, well, we'll leave it here and I'll pick it up. I'll take it back myself. And they didn't like it, but we had to do it that way. And so uh, we left it in hold. And then on the way back, I brought it back. What are the major problems, eye problems 
for the Palestinian people and what training is there normally for specialists in Palestine? There are quite a number of eye doctors and, and also IP, eye doctors who do eye surgery as well in Palestine. It's just that the numbers are of uh, the backlog waiting list is quite long and that's why they need extra help. Doctors are trained locally and then to do their specialty they can be trained in Jerusalem at the eye hospital, St. John's Eye Hospital. It's run by the Order of St. John uh, in East Jerusalem and a number of them can go over to Jordan or Turkey to train or even Russia, I think there are some people. So um, they are allowed to do that from the West Bank. To train in Israel, I think it's it's difficult because of the you know discrimination and plus the cost would be very high as well. Uh, there are quite a lot of doctors in private doing all sorts of uh, surgery. The main problem is cataract surgery. I'm a cataract because um, that's basically the most important or greatest uh, cause of treatable blindness all over the world. So cataract is basically when the lens in the eye, natural lens becomes cloudy and then vision becomes blurred and it can end up with blindness, but it's treatable with an operation. So you remove the cloudy lens and replace it with a plastic lens, a clear plastic lens. So that's what like, you know, Fred Hollows Foundation here have been doing in the Pacific, in Nepal, Africa, and now in Australia itself. It's still the most common problem. Um, there are also other problems like, uh, you know, glaucoma when the pressure is high, then there are diabetes is a major eye problem now because of poor control and that affects blood vessels in the eye to leak and bleed and cause blindness because there's blood in the eye. So for those things, you need a good screening mechanism and also lasers to treat the leaking blood vessels. So they've got all, all, all that, but mainly in private. The health system is divided into areas, the north, the middle, and the south, and then Gaza. So Nablus in the north, Ramallah in the center, and Hebron in the south. And they're all kind of self-sufficient. But um, after a while, it was decided that we should stick to the north and Nablus because the lower re and the other regions were kind of self-sufficient. But there's, there's always a bit of few deficiencies, like we provided funds to get the first operating microscope, or rather, sorry, the second, I should say. There was one which was quite old, so um, I forfeited that. Then later in the year, I approached the Australian representative for Palestine in 2013 was Tom Wilson, and he was very gracious. And he um, helped me get a aid grant to buy another microscope. So to answer your question, really, is they are reasonably well equipped. They've got quite good and adequate medical and surgical personnel who are very competent. It's just that in the public system, there is deficiency. And so we, I've only worked in the, in the public system to try and reduce the backlog of cataracts. We've also had a couple of um, surgeons come from Jordan and overseas to help, like what we call oculoplastic and also children's eye surgery, like to straighten eyes that are turning in or turning out. So 
So that aspect has also been slowly developed, but it's a bit more difficult and more involved because you need to do a lot of screening and a lot of follow-up as well, and the operations take longer to do as well. So we we have been tending to concentrate on cataract surgery. Your visits to Lebanon, you both went, and was that with Palestinian people living in Lebanon? Yes, yeah. I first started when um, PCRF, uh, like I said, were the groundwork, the people doing the groundwork, they invited me to go back in the same year, 2000, to Lebanon, and then next, the following year to Syria to start the program there as well. So um, we did it for about a couple of years, and then somebody else took over. The local doctors in Lebanon and in Syria were actually quite competent. So PCRF organized supplies to be brought in from the U.S. by this person called Betty Brown, whom I mentioned earlier. So she used to go with the local rep and then visit all these places and deliver intraocular lenses, instruments, and other consumables. Later, we were working mainly in Nablus, and about mid-2007, we were asked to kind of go back again to Lebanon. So, And PCRF were the same people. So we did the, similarly the same things in three different areas. We first concentrated on Beirut and did three clinics there, and then we went down south to Saida and did another three clinics there. And then the last time we were up in Tripoli in the north, another three uh, uh, missions there. But the local doctors then started to take over, so which is a good thing. They now run voluntary uh, surgical missions as well, missions meaning like concentrated efforts like over three or four days do lots of surgery. And in the meantime, also provide just the consulting and the post-operative services. So we have stopped going to Lebanon now. But Merlin came along because uh, there was PCR have decided. There was also other so many issues in the refugee camps and all, so she came along then for the latter part of the, uh, since 2007. Between 2007 and 2017, I think, was the last trip we went, or 18. Life is very hard in those refugee camps in Lebanon. Yes, in Lebanon, life was extremely difficult because there was not a lot of integration between the Palestinians and the locals. They had to fend a lot for themselves, the Palestinians in the Palestinian camps. Even work, they couldn't be employed outside of the camps. So a lot of the women, PCRF, did self-empowerment groups and provided especially uh, employment for the women. And, and I admire that in terms of strategy for uh, PCRF. And so the women would do a lot of artwork, whether it was embroidery, painting, sewing, and a lot of that would then provided gainful, not only gainful employment, but provided opportunities for PCRF to sell these items to raise funds for their projects as well. So it was um, of mutual benefit both to the women and to PCRF. But in terms of the camps, very poor facilities where a lot of the children just even after school hours had very little places to play or simple playgrounds that you and I take so much for granted. So in a number of places where there was enough space in communities or even in schools, we raised funds to provide simple things like 
swings and slides and safe areas to play. So that was another one of the smaller projects that we funded to a soccer field and indoor community games like table tennis and uh, and also uh, uniforms for a couple of soccer teams as well. Yeah, it was just so, so many simple things that you and I would take for granted that they just wouldn't have any access to. It's just amazing how deprived and uh, and isolated they were in Lebanon compared even to the bank, the Palestinians in the camps, deprived of access or even just yes, they don't they didn't have a, a wall, they didn't have highways that they couldn't travel on. They were even more deprived in, in, in the camps in, in Lebanon the years that I worked there. Well, both of you are unable to go back there at the moment, and I imagine there are a lot of others as well. How do you keep in touch with the people in Palestine, in Gaza, in the West Bank, maybe also in Lebanon? Is this all through Zoom? Is that how it happens for you now? Yeah, mainly yeah, WhatsApp and uh, messaging and, and speaking directly, really. The, the programs have all, like, yeah, like you said, been completely frozen. Uh, but the local doctors are going on doing their own work. And so uh, we just, um, like I said, just keep in touch. Uh, we're trying, have a chat. Yeah. we're trying at the moment to raise funds so that at least some of the projects on the ground can still go on through PCRS. They still need uh, the funds to keep the locals working uh, in terms of uh, instruments and uh, uh, resources. So that's still going on and we're still uh, providing funds, uh, raising funds, that is. Yeah, last year we raised uh, $18,000 and sent to PCRF because they were they switched their focus to COVID relief and initially basic things like hand sanitizers and protective equipment for the workers and and then uh, just to support them in general. So just last month during the war, PCRF's office in Gaza was damaged and destroyed completely. So a FOPA started uh, another appeal, which has just gone out to raise $50,000 to help just to send it to PCRF so they can still work from home and to just to give them, given the workers a bit of a, like a stipend, I suppose, to help them out as well. That's our focus at present. There's also, a, I just got a, funnily enough, uh, only yesterday I got an appeal through a Palestinian here who has uh, involved some artists who have done some artwork and they were going to sell it, trying to raise funds. So they contacted uh, us. And I've just approached the association to try and publicize that. We have uh, our AGM coming up at the end of uh, July. So we'll bring that up. And also, we, you know, we've also got done our regular stuff here, like quiz night happening next week. We'll try and do a little bit here and there too. Just finally to both of you, you've been working backwards and forwards to Palestine and, as you said, Lebanon for a number of years now. Can I ask you, is there a highlight that you can point to, maybe a 
a local person, one of your patients? At the end of my talks, I usually show up a slide where Dr. Ernesto from Spain and I were operating in the same room, two tables and two patients. And when we finished, we they both sat up and beamed at each other with their iPads over one eye. And we realized, we found out later that they were husband and wife. <laughs> they were both. <laughs> so what a wonderful coincidence to happen. And yeah, the the main thing really is the, uh, for us, it's like it's an ongoing thing. Every time we let, we arrive at the hospital, it's that sense of welcome and the genuine joy in seeing us. They they just feel so happy that there's someone, you know, you know, we may do 10 operations or 50 operations or whatever. It's that feeling that there's somebody out there who cares for them. To get that feeling when you when you are there, they're so grateful to you to come because they feel you know the world has abandoned them, and there are still some people out there. So it's an ongoing highlight, I would say, ongoing feeling. And then we, of course, feel the sense that we are abandoning them when we leave. It's a mix sort of hopeful feeling sometimes. Thank you for that question. My highlight, as I said in the talk, was walking around Hebron on one of our many visits for the last 20 years. We were trying to get a view of Hebron and as we passed a, a front door, a family member opened the door and asked who we were and who we were and what we were doing. And the next moment we were invited in for a cup of tea and the next moment there was this huge Palestinian dish. It's called maklaba. It's an upside down rice and vegetable dish and it was served to us and they insisted on us eating their very dinner that you know that's probably the only dinner that they have for their for their large family but we had to share it i mean they're total strangers and we were total strangers and we were just walking past and i've never in any other situation and we've been tourists in many countries never had that experience just amazing. Well, I'd like to thank you both for being part of the program. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our, to our rambling. <laughs> <laughs> no, We're no, not no, good no. at this. It's okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. I, that's okay. Just one more little story. I just realized this, this was strange. It was in my second visit and we're walking down this little street and these two little kids were in Arabic was asking me questions and me not knowing any Arabic. I kept saying, I only really speak English, I only speak English. Then they, in, in their, they, they said, you know, in their, in their hand language, please wait, please wait. So I said, okay. So off they ran and then the next moment they came back with two stickers on their forehead. And then I realized what they were asking. They were asking if I was Indian. <laughs> because they watch a lot of Hindi movies. Bollywood movies. Bollywood movies, <laughs> you know. And, and then I realized what they were asking. And I just nodded my head, yes, Indian, Indian. <laughs> and they were so happy. And then when I spoke to a friend, they said, this is what it is. They're fascinated by Indians because I said, I wish I was a Bollywood star. And I would have signed out an autograph. But anyway, that was my other story. Thank you very much for listening to our rambling.
and I've been speaking with Dr. Francis Nathan and Merlin Nathan, and the group that they're working through is Palestine Children's Relief Fund, if you'd like to look them up. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Are you wondering how you can pledge your support for a 3CR radio program during Radiothon? It's easy. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au. Or simply post us your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277, that's P.O. Box 1277, in Collingwood 3066. And thank you for being part of 3CR's annual Radiothon. Armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. Following on from last week with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, this week one of our nearest neighbours, New Caledonia, where two referenda to decide independence from France have already been held, the results of number one in November 2018 was 57 to 43 in favour of the no vote. Then again, October 2020, 53 to 47 also in favour of the no vote. The third was scheduled to take place during September and October 2022, but it's been brought forward to December this year by France. I asked Nick why. France is really trying to push through the referendum on self-determination, which is the third, as you say, in a series under an agreement known as the Namir Accord. They want to rush through to blunt the momentum of the independence movement. There are a lot of domestic issues within New Caledonia, which we can talk about in a sec, but it is in this geopolitical context. You know, when Macron came to Australia and New Caledonia in 2018, those were his two stop-off points on that trip, he saw New Caledonia as the pivot point for this so-called India-Australia-France axis, because France is only part of the Indo-Pacific based on its colonial presence in the region, um, its Indian Ocean territories, its Pacific territories like New Caledonia, French Polynesia, Wallace and Futuna. So, of course, if New Caledonia is independent through a referendum on self-determination, if they become an independent and sovereign nation, the question obviously will be heightened in French Polynesia. And so and people are going to be asking, why is France claiming to be a Pacific power when its dependencies in 
the region are saying, we want to be independent and sovereign countries. So France has an interest, this global geostrategic interest, in ending the push for independence. And so France's current overseas minister, who's a fairly young and ambitious politician, a guy called Sebastien Lecornu, has been pushing very hard to um, uh, weight the interests of the referendum process in favour of the forces opposed to independence and in favour of France being able to maintain its presence in the region. And so you've mentioned the two previous referenda. It's a unique situation where the long 20-year transition under the Namir Accord ended with these, a referendum to decide on sovereignty, essentially, whether New Caledonia would take up powers over defence, foreign policy, currency, essentially be a member of the United Nations and an independent state. The two previous votes held in 2018 and 2020 were both broadly regarded as free and fair. You know, there were gripes on both sides about issues about who could register, you know, the time that people were given to register to vote for the, the referendum. Uh, you know, there were campaigns about the imbalance of resources given where the Canucks, you know, just don't have a lot of money to do, for example, TV advertising and publicity and so on. Uh, so the independence movement quite rightly feels that, that the situation was weighted against them. But nonetheless, on both occasions, the FLNKS, the main independence coalition, accepted that it was a, a, you know, a broadly free and fair vote. What's angering people now is that France has abandoned the consensus mode about things like setting the date, um, determining how long people would be allowed to register to vote, you know, for 18-year-olds, newly turned 18, to register and things like that. France is, is um, changing the rules. In an article I've written for the site uh, Inside Story, I quote Lacan himself, who says, look, we didn't forge a consensus about the date. We've decided it will be in December. We, the French state, the French government, have decided that the vote will be held in December. It wasn't a consensus decision, I'm paraphrasing, but this is you know, what he said, and you can see the exact quote. Um, you know, this is a decision by the French government. So they're abandoning the, the previous mode of consensus decision-making about a pretty important decision to rush the vote by December. You know, that's only six months away, and indeed it's only 14 months after the last referendum. And a lot of this is driven by parliamentary politics in France. Uh, France goes to its own national elections next year. Um, in April next year, the French presidential elections are to be held, where President Emmanuel Macron will be running off, uh, most likely, especially Marine Le Pen, uh, who's leader of the uh, party called Rassemblement National, that's just a rebadging of the old Front National, the, the neo-Nazi uh, um, extreme right party. And Macron is desperately you know, seeking support from conservative voters against the extreme right. Um, and so to that extent, he doesn't want to be seen as the guy who's giving away New Caledonia to the Chinese, as the rhetoric sometimes applies. And so you've got a situation where Le Cornu, his overseas minister, is rushing the referendum um, so that it doesn't clash with either the presidential elections or the French legislative elections for the French National Assembly, their parliament, uh, lower house of parliament, which has to be held before June next year. Um, so the Canac movement uh, the, and the uh, independence coalition, the FLNKS, are understandably angry that France has unilaterally decided to push this agenda forward, given their own strategic interests and their own domestic political interests. So that's what you meant when you said domestic issues? It's very much about uh, 
the French government's interests because it was interesting in April this year there was an opinion poll in France, in metropolitan France, showed 66% of those surveyed said that they were not against the so-called separation of New Caledonia from France. Two-thirds of people polled in, in a, you know, an opinion poll in France said they weren't opposed to New Caledonia becoming independent. Um, it, you know, the question was talking about separation, but that's what it means. Now, you can argue about how representative the poll is, but I'm sorry, two-thirds of the vote. A vast majority of French taxpayers, French citizens, wonder why they're putting so much money into France's overseas empire. And France puts a billion dollars a year, more, a billion euros a year, into New Caledonia to maintain its presence there by funding soldiers and public servants and social services and other things in, in, in New Caledonia. That's uh, a question that many ordinary people are saying, what do we as taxpayers, what do we as citizens get out of France maintaining these overseas dependency in every ocean of the world, in the Atlantic, in the Indian Ocean, in the Pacific. Um, and they're questioning what's going on. So I think that the government is acting more on elite interests. And once again, as, as talked about in Australia, the drums of war, the beating of concern about China is part of the picture. So the roundtable, the meeting in Paris held um, at the beginning of this month by Overseas Minister Le Cornu, where he brought a number of New Caledonian politicians to Paris to talk about these issues, to, to make his announcement about the, the date for the referendum and to talk about the consequences of what happens after the referendum. During that time, uh, the meetings were held with the French Defence Department and senior military officers who lectured the New Caledonian politicians about the geostrategic context and, and their concern about the rising, rise of China in the region. And indeed, one of the more conservative, very conservative politicians, a woman named Sonia Bakes, who's president of uh, the southern province and quite a leading conservative figure, indeed right-wing figure in uh, New Caledonia, she met while in Paris with the U.S. Embassy, the Australian Embassy, and the New Zealand Embassy to talk about the China threat, as she announced it, the menace chinois. You know, I, I confirmed with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade that Ms. Bakers had met with Australia's ambassador in Paris. The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade was reluctant to uh, reveal what was discussed in the meeting between Ms. Bakers and the Australian uh, ambassador to France. Um, New Zealand's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade were more forthcoming when I uh, approached them for comment, and they reaffirmed the meeting and indeed said on the record that France was an important part, partner for New Zealand at this time in the Indo-Pacific. Once again, I'm paraphrasing, but it's in the article that you can uh, uh, look up uh, on the Inside Story website. You know, you've got decisions about the rights of the indigenous Kanak people who are a minority in their own homeland, about self-determination in one of Australia's closest neighbours just off the coast of Queensland. I think it's our third closest neighbour, possibly fourth closest neighbour, depending on where you're located in the country. Yet the discussion is about the geopolitics. Indeed, when the press pack talked to Scott Morrison in um, the courtyard of the OECD, now led by Matthias Cormann, who's had a, row, you know, a change of heart and suddenly believes that climate change is a problem, because his new job in Europe requires him to believe there's a problem with climate change now, unlike his role as finance minister in the Australian government. In the courtyard of the OECD, the press pack, when they talked to Morrison, 
talked about submarines, 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 Indo-Pacific, and not a word about New Caledonia, despite the announcement in Paris while they were there about the referendum in New Caledonia, despite the strategic importance of New Caledonia being literally just off the coast of Australia, the core issues and rights of the indigenous people. And this is a problem that the Australian press pack, by and large, just don't talk about the major struggles going on in our region around this fundamental question of self-determination. You have a situation in West Papua. There's been a major deployment of Indonesian military and police forces and significant armed clashes, the arrest of key independence leaders like Victor Yemo and others in West Papua over the last six to 12 months. You've had uh, the president of the autonomous Bougainville government, uh, Ishmael Toarama, just the other day announced that Bougainville is aiming towards declaring independence on the 1st of September 2025. They're still in negotiation with Papua New Guinea, uh, the government in Port Moresby, Prime Minister James Marape, about the transition to independence, about the handover of powers, about who's going to run the health service and a whole range of other complex technical issues. But Toraama's just said, we're moving towards our timetable that we've put on the table for these negotiations with PNG is September 2025. New Caledonia is moving to a referendum in December. These are significant changes in Melanesia, but for Australian strategic hardheads, they are a strategic change in the countries to our immediate north and east. And yet there's a silence in Australian public discussion about these questions because people have been sucked into this notion that um, the China threat is the only topic to discuss when talking about strategic policy. And we haven't even got on to the discussion about climate change and the fact that the OECD countries failed to meet the 2020 target for climate finance to support developing countries. In 2009, they agreed that the target would be $100 billion a year globally. Sounds like a lot of money, but globally it's not that much. $100 billion a year for developing countries to adapt to the ravages of climate change, to mitigate and reduce emissions, and so on. And that was part of the Paris deal that came in 2015, reaffirmed in Paris that wealthy, developed countries, so-called, would need to help fund the transition for poorer countries, and the OECD countries failed to meet the target of what they promised by 2020. More than that, it looks like as we go to Paris, this is going to be a huge fight simply because of the G7, everyone talked about the importance of climate action, but no one, no one amongst the G7 members or the countries like Australia that were there in the room on the sidelines talked about this issue in terms of concrete pledges. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the transition, but no one's put any figures on it, nor indeed put any money on the table. And this is going to be a major sticking point because developing countries, big ones like India, and smaller ones down to our Pacific neighbours are saying, we need finance, technology transfer, cheap loans, grants and so on to make the transition away from fossil fuel electricity, away from polluting transport, away from inefficient farming towards greener alternatives. I read an interesting article, 136 countries, 136 out of nearly 200, have said that their transition under what's called the NDC, their pledge to the Paris Agreement, their nationally determined contribution, as it's called, 
So what they put on the table, for more than half the countries in the world, mostly developing countries, their pledge is conditional on them receiving financial support, technology transfer, technical assistance to make it happen. And that's where the failure of the G7 and indeed of our government is most stark. There's a, a significant gap in the resources needed for people to make the transition before we have more and more adverse effects. And you only have to look. It's not just the small island states so-called drowning in the Pacific. America has got the worst drought that's been seen in decades and decades in the western United States. And they're just coming into their summer. We are going to see horrendous wildfires, as they call them, bushfires, across the whole of the western United States in coming months. Get ready for the TV pictures. It's not rocket science. The drought in western United States is horrendous. And we only have to think back to the bushfires in Australia, 2019-2020, where the Royal Australian Navy sent a warship to Victoria to pull people off the beach at Mallacoota, like a mini Dunkirk evacuation, to know that the balance of resources being put into the threat of climate change is nowhere near the resources that billions and billions of dollars funding arms companies to help contain China. Just finally, Nick, will the pro-independence forces be ready for that election in December? There's a lot of discussion about that very question amongst people. It's interesting. I've you know, been writing about New Caledonia as a journalist for many, many years, and I've rung a number of people to try and get an interview after the Paris meeting, where these leaders came back from Paris after this unilateral decision by the France's overseas minister. Not a lot of people wanted to go on the record. That's a worrying sign. You know, in Malaysian culture, silence doesn't mean consent. People um, agree with you, they'll talk to you. You know, if they sort of agree with you, they'll talk to you about issues. When they disagree with you, they tend not to make a scene about it. They just walk away and, you know, don't kick up a stink until they have to. Um, and I think um, one politician who went on the record uh, to a journalist in New Caledonia, Louis Mapu, senior independence figure in the southern province of New Caledonia, said that the, there was enormous anger amongst ordinary grassroots Kanak activists, independence activists from other communities about this rush to the referendum. Um, and some were talking boycott. And he said, look, we leaders, you know, can we persuade our own people to go to the referendum if they feel that the, the thing's, you know, not fair, not free and fair, not a considered vote? And so the stakes are pretty high. The time is very short. It's a worrying sign that in Australia there's little, if any, discussion about the strategic importance of what's happening 15 kilometers, 1,500 kilometres off the coast of Queensland. It's a significant, significant change. Independence movements think about who their friends were and who their friends weren't in times like this. You only have to look at Timor-Leste. Timor, after independence, needed patrol boats to patrol their exclusive economic zone. And they got two boats from China. And the People's Liberation Army Navy, the PLA Navy, is providing training for Timor's uh, very small navy, but it's only small enough to patrol their maritime zone, which is important for a small island state. You know, that's the same sort of dilemma being posed uh, for the Australian government. Would an independent Kanaki New Caledonia get patrol boats for its million square kilometre, 1.3 million square kilometre exclusive economic zone? Would that come from the Australian Pacific Maritime Security Program, where we're giving out patrol boats around the Pacific? 
would they too go for Chinese patrol boats? These are significant discussions and, uh, you know, it's just not happening in the Australian context because the Australian media, by and large, are blind to the major changes going on in the region around us. It's a problem because China, anyone who talks about the Pacific without a China angle not getting a run in major media is a big gap in the Australian debate. Scott Morrison, when he goes and sits down to talk with um, President Emmanuel Macron in, in Paris, he says that he's talked a lot about the Pacific and about France's role in the Pacific and comes out saying France is a good partner for Australia. Connect people hear that and they think about what that means. Thank you, Nick. Thanks very much, as always. Look forward to speaking with you again. Journalist and researcher, Nick McClellan. 3CR. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel, and it is unlawful. Every day, a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. Ever since the invasion of West Papua over 50 years ago, the Indonesian Armed Forces have committed a never-ending catalogue of extreme human rights abuses. More and more Australians are learning about the situation and the Australian Government's involvement by the AFP training of elite Indonesian soldiers and police who rampaged through West Papua. And despite the dangers and consequences, West Papua activists continued their opposition to the rule by Indonesia and demand independence. Around Australia, there are groups and individuals active in supporting West Papua independence and exposing the human rights abuses by Indonesia and the Australian government's complicity in that action. One such group is Make West Papua Safe, and I spoke with Professor Jason McLeod recently. Jason we're going to talk about the group's work, but can I ask you first about your background and how you became an advocate for the West Papua people? 
Look, I, I went to West Papua for the first time in 1991, and uh, it basically changed my life. I, I remember arriving in, in Jayapura, or Port Numbai, as Papuans call it, which is the capital of, of West Papua, and uh, and at that stage I was quite sick. I, I was recovering from a nasty bout of malaria that I got in Papua New Guinea, so I'd I'd regularly go to this food stall to, to try and get as many calories as I could. And this old Dani man would watch me. And then, you know, one day he came up to me and just very gently, you know, shook my hand and in the manner of uh, of Highlanders and, you know, greeted me with the customary wah, 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 wah. And then, Jan, he proceeded to tell me about the fact that his entire village had been bombed by the Indonesian military and told me how he'd lost his family. And, and you know, I was 19 years old at the time. You know, it was my first time ever in an occupied country. And I just remember being absolutely shocked. Like, why wasn't I told this? And then when I came back to Australia and, and you know, started to dig into this and learnt about the way Australian, the Australian government and the way Australian corporations had been involved in supporting the occupation of West Papua, I, you know, I, I joined the ranks of the newly outraged. I was just absolutely incensed and basically decided that I needed to do whatever I could you know, if if I wanted to be, you know, a good neighbour. But it was really that early experience in there that, you know, that's when West Papua and the, pe- the land and the people got under my skin and I guess I've been involved ever since. I'm wondering, Jason, how difficult or easy it was to find out information about West Papua back 30 years ago. Yeah, well, back back then I didn't know anything. And even, even now... You, you, you mention the words West Papua to a couple of people and they say Papua New Guinea. And, you know, you've sort of got to go back and say, well, actually, no, it's the other half, the western half of the island of New Guinea. It's it's a colony, an Indonesian colony, uh, in the same way that East Timor uh, was an Indonesian colony before it became independent. But, yeah, look, back then, hardly, hardly anyone, even, you know, less people knew about it than they do now. So where did you find like-minded people? Good question. You know, and back then there was one solidarity. The the Australian West Papua Association was around. Uh, That was, you know, Anne Noonan and Joe Collins, you know, stalwarts, the Australian uh, West Papua Solidarity scene. So I got in contact with them and I, I got to know a handful of West Papuans who were living living in Australia, but it was it was really through, you know, meeting people inside the country that kind of got me educated. And then I, then I just started to read everything I could. I was at uni at the time, so I remember reading books by um, the human rights organisation TAPOL, you know, Obliteration of the People, that was kind of, that had a big, big impact on me. And... I mean, what was in the news back then, uh, so this is 1991, was East Timor. I mean, shortly after I came back from West Papua, John Pilger's film Death of a Nation uh, was shown in, in kind of independent cinemas around the country. And then, well, around about that same time, or just before, there was the Dili Massacre. So, you know, many of us found common cause with East Timorese 
activists and I guess a lot of people there got educated about West Papua, about East Timor and about Bougainville, which were, you know, rural wars on our on our doorstep. You know, Bougainville's just had a referendum now, East Timor's independent and you know, but the war in West Papua continues and indeed is intensifying. I remember back then people saying that West Papua was the forgotten East Timor. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think of it as a secret story, you know, really. It's um, it's something that the media and the government has intentionally tried to keep out of our, you know, keep off the radar. You know, it's, it's occasionally burst into our television screens or, uh, you know, uh, into our news feed or on the, you know, the page of the newspaper. But it's still largely a, a, a secret story. And that's why, you know, news uh, outlets like 3CR and your program are just so important because we, ne- we need to get this out. And the Australian government and Australian corporations don't want us to know about it because they are intimately involved in maintaining the occupation and profiting from it. When did Make West Papua Safe become a reality? So I've been travelling into the country on, you know, often a couple of times every year and certainly since 1991, sort of been going, going back and forth. And, you know, we were doing, my colleagues and I, so working very closely with West Papuans, we're running a whole bunch, uh, running training in kind of in nonviolent action and strategy and community organising and things like that. And I remember I was in the country with my colleague Javier Rosa, West Papuan woman, uh, and with Myri Ledbeater, who's a long-term solidarity activist from Aotearoa. And we were at a clandestine gathering with a bunch of students, um, some of whom were survivors of, of human rights abuses at the hands of the Indonesian police and military. And Myri asked, you know, at that stage, the New Zealand government was running, was funding a community policing project and they were training police officers uh, who, was, who were posted in West Papua. And Myri asked, you know, these student activists, what they thought about that. <laughs> you know, they they were very, you know, very articulate and strong in their response. I remember one, you know, young man jumped to his feet and just said, New Zealand can go to hell. And, you know, and I said, well, look, the Australians are involved in too. And, he, and, and they were like, what? You know, Australia's our neighbour, you know. Neighbours are meant to care for each other, meant to look out for each other, you know. We helped Australia against Japanese in World War Two. Like, what what is going on? And you know, Rose Rosa and I had made a commitment then that we would kind of dig into this. And what we what we found out was absolutely shocking. The Australian Federal Police set up with the U.S. government set up and founded a group called Special Detachment 88. So this is a counterinsurgency police force whose purpose is to basically destroy the pro-independence movement. And, you know, back then, they were under the command of their founding officer, a man by the name of Tito Carnivian. He was then chief of police in Papua. 
And they're basically summarily executing nonviolent activists, you know, West Papua and independence activists who were involved with organizing the movement. And there were you know, something like a dozen, dozen people who were, who were murdered at that time. Now, Carmavian is currently the Minister for Internal Affairs, and he advises the Australian Federal Police and their police training program. And the AFP then went on to substantially expand that program. They set with Carnivian and, and others, they set up JCLEP, the Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation. And since 2006, they have trained over 21,000 Indonesian police officers in all sorts of things, in leadership, in cyber, cyber warfare, in surveillance, uh, you know, there's just a host of courses that they, they run through that centre in Chaclek. And it is all about strengthening the capacity of the Indonesian police force, which is hell-bent on, on destroying the, the movement for independence um, and is targeting human rights defenders in West Papua. You know, the, the Indonesian police is routinely... Uh, involved in torture and murder and beating activists. This this happens on monthly, weekly, and sometimes even daily basis. The, the other thing that we learned too was that Australian corporations, uh, you know, are heavily involved. You know, we've got the uh, Anglo-Australian giant Rio Tinto that's involved in the Freeport mine and they are heavily dependent on the Indonesian police and military to provide security. You've got companies like the Colonial Sugar Refinery, uh, CSR, that's involved in sugar plantations in the, in the south, timber companies. Yeah, it's just, you know, corporations are just lining up to extract the resources from West Papua and they absolutely depend on the Indonesian police and military to provide security. And the Australian government is willingly willingly supporting that through their training programs. I don't think there's too many Australians who are aware of this largely hidden role of the AFP, not only in Indonesia. Yeah, that's right. And that's why we formed Lake West Papua Safe. We, you know, we formed it to expose the role the Australian government in maintaining the occupation and, you know, really look at, you know, how we can ensure that human rights abusers are not trained by the Australian police. So, you know, we're, we're currently engaged in uh, investigations. We've, we've kind of launched a campaign. We've, we found out that there's pretty much no policy framework in place to ensure that uh, human rights abusers are not trained uh, by the Australian Federal Police. And then we're also looking into into the role of various arms companies. So, you know, Boeing, for instance, sells attack helicopters to the Indonesian military. You've got the, uh, the global French arms company, Thales, which has a uh, manufacturing base in Australia and offices uh, around the country. They sell the Bushmaster to the Indonesian military. Thales also sells munitions to the Indonesian military, which, you know, uh, are being used in the war in the highlands, in places like Nduga and Intanjaya and Punchak. So the Australian government, through the federal police, through the Australian Defence Force and through 
you know, these uh, Australian-based mining companies and also Australian-based arms companies are heavily involved in supporting the occupation. And it's kind of like the situation in Australia, you know, some 200 plus years ago during the frontier wars against uh, Aboriginal people in this country. Except this time, the Indonesian military has uh, helicopter gunships and automatic weapons. It's a, it's a very, very similar situation. And it's really, you know, up to us, up to ordinary people to say, what do we think about this? Are we happy with the Australian government playing this role and Australian corporations playing this role? And those of us from Make West Papua Safe, uh, you know, are determined to be the best neighbours we can and get in the way of both the training uh, of the Indonesian police and also the military and also the export of weapons and munitions to the Indonesian police and military. Well, taking into account all that you've said, you say you visit possibly twice a year. Is that all? Yeah, up until COVID, I was, I was travelling there quite regularly. So is that clandestine or are you open in some way that they know that you're there? It's very, very difficult. Um, I, you know, unfortunately, I can't be, be open about it. But, yes, yeah, since COVID, that's all changed. And, um, and the security situation is just getting, getting worse and worse. You know, the Indonesian government has recently declared the Organisasi uh, Papua Merdeka, the Free Papua Movement, a terrorist group. And, you know, journalists and human rights defenders and, you know, lawyers uh, and in some cases, even, you know, Papuan politicians uh, that are part of the Indonesian government are just saying that they are being targeted by the Indonesian state and accused of being sympathisers or, or somehow involved with the Free Papua Movement. So it's a very, very dangerous situation. And yet I'm, I'm unable, uh, both because of the pandemic, but also because of the, you know, the, the worsening security situation, I'm unable to travel there. But the, the movement is just continuing to grow. You know, despite the repression, you know, more and more people are involved. And, you know, I, when I was there last year, I, I saw primary school kids actively involved in civilian-based resistance organisations. So their, their courage and their determination is absolutely inspiring. Since COVID, as you said, you're unable to travel there. How difficult then is it to keep in contact with the Indigenous West Papuans? It's not too bad. We've uh, there's there's a range of you know communication strategies that we've got. Um, I'm probably in daily contact with people. Of course, it gets more difficult because from time to time. So during the the August and September uprising, anti-racist uprising in 2019. And last month, the Indonesian government, we believe, was throttling the internet, which made it very difficult to get uh, communications out of West Papua, particularly from the capital. Other places, it was a bit easier. But you know, people are resourceful, and you know, I find continue to find ways to to communicate the story. And of course, you know, modern internet communications does make that a lot easier. There's now an estimated how many Indonesian troops and soldiers and police in West Papua. Is there any idea just how widespread and how 
how they've got into every corner of that country? That's right. They're in every part of the country. Um, you know, they have this this parallel system where the security apparatus mirrors the civilian state uh, apparatus. So even in the smallest hamlet, you'll have you know people who will be reporting to the Indonesian police and military. You know, and that goes right up to cabinet in Jakarta. However, most Papuans. You know, my in, in my experience of travelling back and forth in the last 30 years, most Papuans are fundamentally opposed to the Indonesian state. Their their experience of the state is one of of violence, and every Papuan that I've ever spoken to over the last 30 years knows friends or family who've been killed by the state. But you know this state is also following the path they followed in East Timor. You know, they're, they're setting up militia groups and we saw some of these militia groups come out into the open in 2019, in August and September, and we saw video footage of them being, you know, directed. Uh, it appeared they were being directed by the Indonesian police and military who did nothing to stop them from, uh, you know, beating up and in some cases, you know, seriously attacking and even, even killing ordinary West Papuans. So yeah, look, it's an occupied situation. I don't know the exact numbers of troops. It's, it's very hard to say, but certainly they have been dramatically increasing in recent months. The war in the highlands has expanded from Induga, which is one of the, uh, the areas in the highlands, to neighbouring neighboring areas, Punchak and Iliga, and there's an influx of Indonesian military, uh, of Special Detachment 88, and the Indonesian police and military are carrying out joint operations in those areas. And we're getting lots of reports of, you know, helicopter gunships and aerial bombardment, as well as, you know, ground operations. So in a sense, are you saying this is worse than what it was in East Timor? Oh, look, I'm, I'm always reluctant to compare you know, suffering. What I will say is that the occupation of West Papua has been happening, you know, longer than East Timor. As as you would know, Jan, you know, the Indonesian military invaded East Timor in 75, if, I, um, if I'm correct, from memory. And, you know, in West Papua, they, they invaded in 61, and they've basically been an at an occupying presence since 63, and you know that was there was kind of a rubber stamp sham endorsement or or you know or sham transfer of sovereignty from the Dutch to Indonesia um, back in '69. But it's and there were you know it was West Papua was a military operations area right up until the fall of Sahado in '98. But since let me try and recollect here. I think since 2018, December 2018, military operations in the Highlands have definitely intensified. And with the declaration of the OPM as a terrorist group, we're starting to see the Indonesian police and military crack down much more on civil society. So things are things are definitely getting worse. But as I said, you know the the opposition uh, and the determination 
of West Papuans is also strengthening day by day. And unlike East Timor, I mean, East Timor, you had groups like Solidamore and, and others provided impressive solidarity and Timorese and, and, and Indonesians worked together to get rid of Suharto. But, you know, the, you know, I would say the Indonesian solidarity is certainly strengthening. You know, you've got groups like Front Rakyat uh, Indonesia untuk West Papua, known by its acronym Free West Papua, and they're in they're in many many cities right across Java, Sulawesi, and Bali, and you know, and other parts of the archipelago. They're really forthright. They support self determination for West Papuans, um, which is a a much more radical position. Than some of the Indonesian solidarity activists, you know, took on on East Timor uh, privately. You know, they would say yes, of course, but you know, Free has come out publicly in support of self determination. So, there's there's incredibly courageous uh, and determined people, both inside West Papua and you know, ordinary Indonesians who are standing with them. Are you aware of the situation of the West Papuans who live in Indonesia and study there? Yeah, I'm in con- contact with with a bunch of those folks. Several of them, after you know, there was a uh, there was a racist incident in Surabaya back in August 19, and there was what the Papuans call the Exodus, in which thousands and thousands of Papuan students basically left the university cities, in particularly in Java and Bali and and elsewhere, and they returned back to West Papua because they didn't feel safe. And, you know, you talk to ordinary Papuan students uh, living and studying in Indonesia, and they will tell you again and again without fail of the daily racism uh, and taunts they experience. And in some cases, you know, when they, they'll go onto the street, the police will be absolutely, uh, will behave in, in a very brutal fashion towards them, beating them, yeah, taunting, using racist taunts against them. This kind of experience uh, happens regularly, and I've and I've witnessed it firsthand. You know, when I've been with Papuans, I've heard what uh, ordinary Indonesians and police say. So yes, you know, it's it's kind of an an experience that I guess you know lots of people of colour uh, around the world are experiencing. But the the racist violence in Indonesia is particularly bad, which again makes the, the solidarity from groups like Free, you know, all, all the more impressive and encouraging. We could go on forever, I think, Jason. But um, we could, yeah, <laughs> I think, we could. I could keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I think we better get on to. Um, let's get to the final part of the interview, Jason, and the sure. work that your group does in Brisbane and how successful you think you've been or you know you've been. Yeah, so look, Make West Papua Safe has supporters all across the country and, we've, and we're starting an international network. So at the moment, we our biggest campaign is against the Australian Federal Police uh, and we are wanting to the Australian Federal Police to exclude Indonesian police officers involved in human rights abuses from their training program. So that's quite developed. We've kind of, we're working on a, some investigations at the moment, uh, which will be released publicly uh, shortly, and we've, you know, been doing kind of actions and trying to engage the AFP and politicians, you know, in, in 
dialogue around that and kind of building our support base. And then we're all we're sort of got another campaign which we're starting to explore, which is around the arms companies, Australian-based arms companies that are selling to Indonesia. So that's in its early stages. Yeah, a couple of us were arrested in action in Tales up in Brisbane. We go to court on July 6. And then we're trying to expand the campaign. So we're working with colleagues in other countries whose governments and corporations also are involved with either training the Indonesian police uh, or selling arms to the Indonesian military and police. So we're very much, you know, looking at internationalising the work of Make West Papua Safe. And of course, you know, we we have, you know, some of our one of our founders lives in West Papua and we've got a growing, you know, network inside the country and are working very closely with people inside the country and supporting the work of human rights defenders uh, as they you know, accompany the civilian movement through legal cases uh, or through human rights advocacy uh, as well. So we really encourage your listeners to search us up, make West Papua safe, follow us on social media, sign our petition that will get you on our, our mailing list. And, you know, this is, this is all about uh, social movement and building the numbers and targeting the ways Australian government and corporations prop up the occupation through very strategic and disciplined uh, campaigns of nonviolent action. And that work's just going to continue. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Jan. Thanks for the interview. And I was speaking there with Professor Jason McLeod from the group Make West Papua Safe. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Online and nationwide, right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff and book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. 
IPAN is a 3CR supporter. We hear many stories about the impact of the pandemic on countries far from Australia, but only recently PNG is rousing a little interest from the mainstream media. But there are Australians with long-time and close relationships with people in various parts of PNG, where they've been working in partnerships with the local communities, resisting inappropriate development and exploitative industries. One is Natalie Lowry from Aidwatch, and I spoke with Natalie yesterday. Nat, a number of areas in particular where you've been working with local communities in recent times. One is the up in the area where the communities have fought against deep sea mining. Has the pandemic reached that area of PNG, and if so, how are the people coping? Yeah, unfortunately, COVID has. I think reached pretty much all the provinces. It's interesting when I talk to our partners and, and you know people we've been working with, because in the case of PNG, I mean their health system is you know not great, but you know they also have like high cases of malaria, HIV, um, and other you know other sort of diseases. So COVID's just sort of adding to that really. You know everyone I talk to, they're, they're all being as COVID safe as they can. Um, very hard, of course, in, in settlements, say, in Port Moresby. But they seem to be doing fine. There are cases. Um, no one I know has had it or, or, or had any issues, which is great. But, yeah, there is concerns. Um, I know just getting vaccines out to communities. There's a lot of misinformation through Facebook where it's just all the kind of crazy misinformation that we've sort of seen some in Australia, like there. It's also through there. I know I listened actually recently to an ABC interview with an Australian medical professional that was up in one of the Highland areas and how they were having to just sort of really get good information out because the vaccine um, uptake was not really happening and, of course, the vaccines have a limited time. So it sounds like there's been a lot of work just to try and get information out. Clearly my, my partners and friends are all pretty aware and they've been trying to do their own work with their communities. So people understand this is a real, you know, it's a real virus. It's not some, you know, uh, thing that's just being uh, told and not happening. And so, yeah, that's kind of the, what I'm hearing from the ground anyway. So it has gone into all the provinces. The majority of the cases are in those sort of dense areas like Port Moresby, Lay the towns, um, Medang, and so I guess in those areas they're trying to do the best they can for people to be as COVID safe as they can. Is there a history in PNG of serious flu? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I think the thing is because you have, you know, they have other serious illnesses like malaria, they also have HIV, and they've got these other, you know, things that we maybe have dealt with or don't have as much of. So they're really the, the highest rates of issues that they're dealing with in hospitals. And as you've said, those areas in the highlands, so difficult to get people in when people are desperately needing help. This health service is really depleted in PNG or, mm. or it never has been a really good health service. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it's it seemed like in Port Moresby, you know, it was, the health system was really breaking down, unfortunately. I know that another friend said, because of the COVID outbreak and the concerns there and the pressure to try and deal with anyone who um, had, had COVID, it meant that, for example, in the maternity wards, there were no nurses and women were having to try and give birth by themselves. So it's just, you know, the staff are overwhelmed that don't have the resources. So yeah, there's these real concerns, I guess, in how it's been how it's been dealt with. And I think that, you know, obviously they're trying to do the best they can. Kind of comments or the concerns that I keep getting from my, my kind of friends and colleagues there, and, and I know this is the case in, in parts of Indonesia too, is that they already have these other illnesses that, you know, malaria, HIV that are, are such high rates anyway. COVID is just another thing. It's not like here where it's just such a prominent every day in the news. They're dealing with lots of other things as well that are already, you know, being big issues. I mean, even even polio had come back to PNG, you know, things like that. So it's just sort of adding to the stress of a health system that is really, really lacking, unfortunately, which is, you know, a real detriment to the fact that Australia plays such a significant role in PNG with our aid but also with our development and companies and corporations particularly in extractive industries like mining yet they still don't have the infrastructure resource rich country that still the infrastructure of health and education services are just you know not there in certain areas unfortunately. Has it in a sense stopped those extractive industries doing their work at the moment because of maybe Australian workers not being brought in or the ones that were there leaving. I'm talking about also the CPIC area where the work hasn't started yet but there's a lot of concern there about the, the project there. I think there is concern and once again you know it's really hard to get lots of information and, and to be you know absolutely 100% but there still was, was fly and fly out workers and um, I think in the beginning some of those cases original cases because PNG for a while there would seem to be doing quite well and clearly a lot of Papua New Guineans aren't flying overseas and coming back into the country you know so it's coming in most likely I'd say by fly and fly out workers that have that are coming from Australia, um, that I'd say that would be one way that the virus has entered into PNG. In the case of the CPIC, Project CPIC, our partner, um, they've been really amazing actually. So this has been a concern around the world that while COVID is locking us down, it hasn't necessarily locked down these industries, particularly mining. Um, and there is an international kind of um, campaign of you know, really monitoring the mining and COVID situation and how extractivist um, industries are taking advantage of the lockdown and still allowed to operate. Um, in the case of the CPIC, the movement there and the campaign there is, is actually been quite incredible. So WeWAC, which is the main town, have had times they've had to, um, you know, lock down to some degree and the, our team at Project CPIC are very, very COVID safe. But they have managed to pull off an extraordinary gathering for a week um, the end of April, early May, where they brought together all these clan leaders along the river to do these workshops and discussions to kind of carry on the campaign saying they don't want this development to happen. And actually the governor, Alan Bird, of East Sepik, 
went along for that entire week and also is standing with them saying we don't want this development or any other sort of developments that are going to destroy the Sepik River and our culture and our, you know, their their own economies that they have. Despite COVID, they managed to pull this off. They had a COVID safe event. They actually have written an article about how they had a COVID safe event. So um, it's quite inspiring actually that they have still enable, been able to continue their campaigning to make sure this mine doesn't go ahead, especially in these these times where, you know, COVID can take over everything in terms of our media and and quietly in the background these industries can continue. So they've made sure that that hasn't been able to happen and really just reaffirm that the communities along the river system are saying no and they want to ban on the Frida River mine and any other developments that will destroy their lives and livelihoods and culture. Where exactly is the Freedom Mine and can you explain the consequences for or how many people are in, would be involved if this project goes ahead? The proposed project, which would be a, it's a gold and copper mine, which would be one of the biggest mines in the world if it goes ahead, would be at the headwaters of the Freed River. Now, the Freed River, it's sort of like the, it's like the main one of the main tributaries into the Sepik River. The concern is major tailings in an area that um, has high rainfall and also is prone to earthquakes. So there's all these components when they had the environmental impact assessment. You know, we had experts, we had about ten different expert reports, and a lot of the concerns were around this environment not being stable enough to be able to hold such massive tailings. So, of course, the concern there is what's happened at Octeti and the Fly River, where the tailings spill out into the river system and kill the river system. Now, if that was to happen, of course, the, the, the communities really close to the mine would be deeply impacted. But actually, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of people along the Sepik River that would be impacted. So that's why this campaign is not just about those communities that would be near the mine site. It's about all the communities downstream. And the, the Sepik River is one of the last pristine rivers in the world. And we're talking about one of the most biodiverse and also linguistically diverse and culturally diverse um, parts of the world, and so this is a plan. So, you know, Project CPIC and the community say we're not just protecting this river system for ourselves and our communities. This is something we need to protect for the world, consistent considering how many of our river systems have been destroyed. So it's you know the the, the CPIC River is is often called the Amazon of the Asia Pacific region. It's a very large ecosystem. And, you know, it's not just the river, it's also the forests that rely on the river and the people that rely on the river and, and all the birds and the, the animals um, that rely on the river system that um, would be threatened. How does the, or how do the miners justify it without all these concerns of the people? And is the PNG government and the local government in favour of this development? So the mining company, as per usual, it's, you know, their sort of argument is, oh, well, it's economic and we can give you roads and we can do this. But, you know, as uh, Emmanuel Penny, who's the co-founder of Project CPIC, who's really leading the campaign to stop this and working with, with um, the traditional owners, McLean leaders along the river, 
I went with him to meet with Panos, the company, which is um, a Chinese-owned but Australian-registered company, so the head office in Brisbane. And Manu led that conversation, and they talked to economics, and he said, but we already have our own local economies. We have tobacco, we have vanilla, we have... And they do, they, they have these economies. What they do need is better access to markets, but they don't need a mine for that to happen. Um, and as we've seen so many times in Papua New Guinea, these companies promise all these things, but they don't actually happen. Only a handful of people benefit. And usually, you know, that's, that, beca- that becomes a corrupted sort of space. And so many other communities just don't get anything. Uh, what they get is the environmental impacts, the health impacts, um, and they lose livelihood. So this is a common thing you hear everywhere. I mean, I don't know of many mines that have really benefited communities, um, even here in Australia, in the long run. There's always some individuals that benefit, but often the indigenous people that um, have been living on those lands for thousands of years in some cases, they're not the ones who benefit. In terms of opposition, as I said, the governor of East Sepik, and the, that, that provincial government has come out um, not wanting the development to go ahead. So that's very significant. And that has also been joined by West Epic because the company, because of the tailings dam, the company proposed that they would build a pipeline that would run across from East Epic to West Epic to dump the tailings in the ocean near Vanamo, which is one of the main towns of West Epic which is not the answer either to the situation. So deep-sea tailings placement, which is illegal in most countries and still not in PNG, is certainly not the answer to deal with this toxic heavy metals and waste that would be coming from the mine. In terms of the national government, uh, I think there's some outspoken people, but that's probably where the work needs to happen. You know, they're the ones who need to go, no, this can't happen. There's clearly huge amounts of support across PNG for um, the campaign in East CPIC. And a big part of that is because the decision for the mine not to go ahead has come from the grassroots. It's come from their traditional government systems, which is the House Tamborans, which is which is their traditional kind of spaces, Melanesian governance space along the East CPIC River where they make these decisions. Um, and that's really resonated across PNG about the importance of their own traditional governance systems to make decisions about development and not it being imposed by the sort of Western value system that's also obviously in PNG with the national government because it's very much a Westminster system. So that's been really interesting and been quite amazing to sort of see that support from the village right up to academics in PNG who aren't maybe from ECPIC but are standing with the CPIC communities. So is there a great hope that this project will fall because there's so much support? I think we'd like to think so, but I think we also have to look at what's happening internationally, particularly around the push for copper. Because of the the so-called green transition, copper is um, one of the metals that is going to be needed and there's predicting that it the... um, need for copper could grow as much as 500% by 2050. So there'll be external pressures around whether this mine goes ahead. And, you know, that could be possibly what drives the national government to go, no, it's going to go ahead. So that's a concern. And obviously even COVID's still a concern. But at the moment, 
the, the local communities and the support of the provincial government, I think has been able to hold it off to a certain point. But, you know, it needs to be, there needs to be a ban on that development ever happening for it to really not happen. Um, and that's going to have to come from, you know, the national government. So, I mean, I think um, Alan Bird has spoken of, you know, legal avenues if the national government doesn't sort of listen to the provincial government. Um, and there's also a broader campaign around, which we know is a long term, which is about giving the Sepik River World Heritage status. Uh, and so, you know, that would then it'd be a bit like the, the, the sort of Jabaluka case in, in Kakadu and the strategy they've used there. So that's also another avenue that they're considering. And part of that, that gathering that happened in April was talking to the clan leaders about that possibility. So they've actually given permission to Project CPIC to lead on that, which is quite a significant thing, for them to lead on making sure that mine doesn't go ahead. So, yes, it's still a wait and see, and we know how aggressive these um, extractive industries can be. So while I would say, yes, I think that we can celebrate there's been some wins, certainly they can't just sit back there. They still have to keep the fight going. What are you hearing about the push for deep sea mining at this time? So in, within Papua New Guinea, you know, those once again, COVID has put a hold on things for them. You know, there was uh, before, I think just before everything went into lockdown, even in PNG, some of our partners were in Port Moresby and they were really ready to, to do some serious lobbying with the national government. And unfortunately, lockdown happened and they had to make decisions to get back to their own villages, uh, which we you know, really tried to support, make sure that they could. Um, but also they are looking, so in New Island province, which is on the west coast where the communities there are only 25 kilometres away from the Sawala One project, which is the project being given the green licence, despite the fact the company Nautilus has went into bankruptcy, um, there is another company that sort of formed out of that that still exists. So we have to be very prepared that that can go ahead. So at the end of July, those communities will be also having their large gathering around their shark calling culture. So probably not dissimilar to what's happened at the CPIC, that the, the CPIC area. Along that west coast, those communities will be gathering and the traditional owners will be talking to how they can continue the fight to stop deep sea mining happening. Um, and I think more broadly, the Alliance of Sawara Warriors, which is the movement across six provinces, they are going to sort of keep building this year around around that. And their aim is to basically say the government has to cancel the licences, all the licences across the Bismarck and Solomon Seas, and for a ban to be called across PNG. So once again, it's sort of in that the same place as the CPIC campaign, the Save the CPIC campaign, where very strong movement, but there's still a lot of work to be done to get the national government to to really make sure this doesn't happen. In terms of deep sea mining internationally, which is also a major concern in our international waters, in an area called the Currington Clipperton Zone, the company that's been really marketing the industry is called a company called Deep Green that's about to become a public company and merge into what's called the Metals Company. So our campaign, the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, has been doing a lot of focus around the shareholders of this new company. Um, we've done a shareholder advisory. And in the last week, actually, there's been really significant media around exposing Deep Green around their greenwashing 
of this industry as you know an answer to the green transition. Much so that there were articles in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Financial Times, um, and The Guardian, which is quite significant. And also over 300 scientists uh, sent out a statement asking for a pause on deep sea mining because of the environmental risk. Now, all of these were marine scientists. So it was quite an exciting week, but in saying that, we've just found out that um, Deep Green, who has these sort of partnerships with, they, they can't mine in the international waters unless they have a partnership with a, a state. So they've got a partnership with Nauru, a partnership with Tonga, and a partnership with Karabas. And in the International Seabed Authority that's making the decisions on these exploration licenses in international waters, they can only start giving out operating licenses if this so-called two-year rule is triggered. And we've just found out that Nauru is going to trigger that rule this week, which is really, really concerning for us. And we're in a mad rush to try and see how we can put pressure on Nauru for this not to happen. Because as soon as that two-year rule is triggered, then we're in another part of the fight, which is if an operating license is given within the current Clifton zone, we are now, we're now in the biggest fight of trying to stop what would be the biggest mining operation this planet has ever seen. It will make the tar sands look tiny. So well, on one hand, we've got this really great communications and media that's been happening and, and scientists coming on board and the European Commission and some really significant voices. We're also going to have an uphill battle if Nauru does announce that triggering of the two rule within the International Seabed Authority. So the fight still continues. Um, and while there's this sort of, there's national waters and international waters, in the broader movement, we're all working together because we know Aban and Papua New Guinea will resonate across the sort of international space as well. So it, it's quite an amazing coalition um, that's been very much driven by the grassroots across the Pacific. And, you know, we there's even big groups now, like the, the big um, NGOs like Greenpeace and WWF that have come on board. So on one hand, it's exciting because we have quite a cohesive international movement that, you know, is right down there in the grassroots as well. But we're also up against it if this two-year rule is triggered. Well, finally, Natalie, back to the capital, Port Moresby, and a proposed casino. You brought to Australia one of the people who lived in that area where the casino is proposed. Can you explain not only the concerns of building a casino, but also what it's going to do with the people who live in that area? Sure. So the the casino is proposed for um, Parker Hill, which is in downtown Port Moresby. And since 2012, Parker Hill was... for, for actually five, nearly five generations, Parker Hill was a settlement. And it wasn't just any, it, it, it was a very unique settlement. Um, Parker Hill was one of the first settlements. It's where they brought in people from different parts of the country as indentured labour to build Port Moresby. And as a settlement, it was a very peaceful settlement and it was a very organised settlement. They had their own law and order society. They had a church. They had a primary school. Women were safe. So there were single mothers there that were safe. The women had their own economies through a local market, um, and there were many people there employed. You know, we've done sort of the research around that, and, and they weren't wealthy. It was still a poor community in a sense of our kind of standards, but they had everything they needed, and they were happy. Um, and then these developers came in, and, and along with the 
this sort of provincial government of Port Moresby, uh, they decided that, you know, they wanted to develop this area into a marina and a very Sydney-style type of development, you know, for the rich. Um, so there was a long battle there for the community to try and stay, which resulted in what we consider a, a legal and, and forced and quite brutal eviction. It was over three to four evictions that saw those communities dispersed across Port Moresby, of which a significant of them now live on the streets. So for the last oh, three or so years, there's been a you know a strong fight, even trying to, to look legal avenues, but unsuccessfully that community has not received any justice for what has happened. And Parker Hill has remained a naked hill and no development. But now they're talking about this casino. So whether it goes ahead is a whole other thing, but it's kind of ludicrous. You're talking about a city that has, has huge amounts of disparity. You know, as someone who has been there and has lived in the settlements, you have the settlements and you have the gated communities. So you have deep poverty to the sort of wealthy rich class of which many are expats. And now they want to put in a casino. <laughs> like what is a casino going to do for these people and the, and the people who, who are just surviving in Port Moresby? I mean, we know the evils of casinos. So that in itself is is ridiculous, but also just to be creating these wealthy developments in a place where people are living on the streets doesn't make sense. So I think there's a lot of local concern. Once again, whether it happens, I don't know. Um, the Parker Hill Development Company and those that are kind of involved in it, you know, there's been a lot of talk for a long time and nothing's really happened. So I guess we can hope that it can't go ahead. But Still, at the end of the day, the Parker Hill community has not had any justice for what has happened to them. And, you know, it's a deep concern that this will continue with settlements and larger settlements in Port Moresby and also in the other other larger towns like Ley and Medang. Um, so that housing issue and the rights to housing um, is still a serious issue for communities living in the more urban areas of Papua New Guinea. The new leader of PNG, he's obviously in favour of this casino? I'm not 100% sure actually where the national government is on it. I know that the governor of Port Moresby, Powers Parkop, is all for it. And whether, you know, at the end of the day, the national government can have much of a say, you know, it's it's one of those, you've got your, you know, this is the, the capital, and so the capital has their own government, um, as well as, you know, the national government. So that's, a, I guess, something for us to kind of look into. There hasn't been a lot of on-the-ground information coming out for us. I mean, obviously, the Parker Hill community are so dispersed and just dealing with trying to survive every day. Um, it's, you know, they have as much information as I do around whether this casino will go ahead. And, and we know who the key players are, and that's Parker Hill Development Company and Powers Park Ops Government, the governor. They're all for it. Um, this is the kind of elite of... Port Moresby um, and you know in their minds they see it as bringing in tourism and it's just it, it, it's not really going to bring money in for the greater people it's just bringing in money for to line those people who already have money and probably create even more corruption unfortunately with something like a casino in Port Moresby. Well thank you for fitting me in we know you're very busy. No worries. Thank you Jan thank you so much for everything you do and um, I hope 3CR is going well with the uh, raising the funds that you deserve. And we certainly do. That was Nat Larry from Aid Watch.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.